everybody, welcome back to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton, and on today's episode, we're talking about breakthrough. And uh, if you've ever been around any kind of church, you've wondered, heard, thought about how do I have a breakthrough in this area? How do I have a breakthrough uh, in my life? How do I have a breakthrough in my finances? Well, Ken and I sit down and we talk about all things breakthrough. And this is part one of a two-part conversation about breakthrough. Hope you enjoy. Today, we're going to be talking about the idea of breakthrough. Um, if you've spent any amount of time among uh, the charismatic circles, uh, the, the words breakthrough uh, are probably pretty familiar uh, to you. We all want to experience breakthrough. Uh, we want to, to live in, in a, a place of breakthrough. Uh, you may be praying for finances, for healing, for um, job or, or whatever, and needing that breakthrough. And so, um, you know, we want, to, we want to talk to Ken today and say, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And, and how can we, uh, as believers, press into and maybe position ourselves uh, for, for breakthrough? as it comes. So Ken, thank, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Love being here. Well, we, we love having you. First of all, I think it'd be really helpful. Can you just, I mean, a lot of people use it a lot of different ways. In your mind, what do we mean when we say breakthrough? Well, I mean something where God's power is released in such a way that an unacceptable condition is changed. Sometimes that'll be momentary or instantaneous. Sometimes it may occur played out over a you know period of time. But when the end state is achieved, the unacceptable situation is now resolved through God's power being evidenced because of his mercy toward his people. And so when we're thinking about breakthrough, I mean, walk us through the mindset of, you know, a lot of us have this struggle with, well, isn't God sovereign and doesn't he do what he wants to do? And, and doesn't he, I mean, what, what role does our prayers play versus, you know, his action? Can you just sort of give us, you know, your insights in, into a, a framework uh, to position our, our, our minds and our thought life to to breakthrough. I mean, does that make sense? Can you, can you help us? How, how do we position, okay, God is sovereign. He's over all things in the context of breakthrough. Yeah. You know, this is, the, you're actually asking a very large theological question that <laughs> most, I know. most I of our listeners you. might, <laughs> might not have ever thought about in a formal way, but, you know, traditionally, uh, particularly if you're coming out of a Protestant background, I would say um, John Calvin, the reformer from Switzerland, actually Geneva, uh, John Calvin really holds the intellectual high ground in this area. And, you know, he taught a lot about sovereignty. Now, he was building on the writings of other theological writers, men like Augustine and uh, maybe Thomas Aquinas and a few others. But, um, but, in the Protestant tradition, John Calvin is sort of the go-to and the gold standard. And with that, you know, Calvin taught a lot about sovereignty and that other word that is often 
that often appears right next to it in popular theological writing, um, which is predestination. And so many believers have been raised to think that everything that happens is predestined. There's just nothing we can do. And the, the problem with it is not that terms like sovereignty and predestination don't occur in Scripture. It's that they're being used in a way, in that kind of theological discourse, which doesn't really completely track to the, uh, to the teachings of Scripture. Now let me unpack that just a little bit, because I just made a really big statement. Um, I'm going to take predestination. That word does occur in the book of Romans. Anyone who's had any theological training or who's ever you know, been to church where someone preached through the book of Romans uh, will be familiar with this term, predestination. What that has come to mean, and it, it, it comes directly out of the writings of Calvin and Augustine and others, is that God predestines some people to heaven and predestines others to hell. And about 300 years ago, during a time of the Puritans in America, there was a lot of angst. You know, probably if they'd had Prozac in those days, people would have been taking it. That people were wringing their hands. How do I know if I'm among the elect or the damned? And so the best the preachers of the time could say was, well, live as though you're among the elect. Uh, maybe you'll get a better place in hell if you're among the damned. <laughs> and of course, if you're among the elect, you don't want to lose that position by living as though you're among the damned. So the best thing you can do is live that way. But people were overwrought with this. I mean, they, they you know, they sought the Lord and they cried out and they were, I mean, they were just, they were scared. So predestination isn't used that way in the book of Romans. And I know that's going to come as a shock to a lot of our listeners who have had again, any level of exposure to this concept. But if you look at how Paul uses the term predestination in the book of Romans, what he says is, those whom God foreknew, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he sanctified, and those whom he sanctified, he glorified. And so the train of thought is that um, in the foreknowledge of God, he predestines people to glory meaning the outcome is certain that those who are among his own, they will reach glory. But that's not the same thing as saying that they have been handpicked to be among the elect or the damned. That is to take the text and go places with it that it doesn't say. So when we're talking about God's sovereignty, when we're talking about predestination, a lot of people have been raised to believe that everything is you know, baked, and it's it's all whatever God says it's going to be. But if we look at the stories in Scripture, we actually see cases where people prayed, and it seems that they got what they wanted. Now, I don't have the citations with me because I'm driving while we are recording here. Yes, both hands are on the wheel, and no, I'm not holding my phone. But um, we remember that Moses when God wanted to blot out Israel because of their rebellion, more than once, I might add, in the wilderness, Moses would go to the Lord and intercede and seemingly change his mind. Or when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham begins bargaining, and he says, if there are 50 righteous people, will you destroy the city? No, if there are 50 righteous, I will spare it. And Abraham continues to go back to God, 
until finally he stops by asking for ten, and the Lord says, if I can find ten righteous people, I will not destroy the city. Well, as it turns out, if he'd gone one more ask and gone to five, he would have been, he would have saved the whole city, because Lot and his wife and, you know, the daughters and the sons-in-law, they would have been six. But, um, seemingly, Abraham was able to prevail upon God. And then, you know, Jesus tells a story about a unrighteous judge who doesn't fear God or anybody else, but this widow keeps coming and being persistent. And the judge says, even though I don't fear God or men, this widow's driving me nuts, so I'm going to just give her what she wants. And then Jesus says, will not your heavenly Father, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And so, you know, with that, actually that's a direct, that line, the judge of all the earth do right, that's from Abraham when he's bargaining with God. But, but Jesus says, you know, will not God hear his elect who cry out to him day and night? And so it seems that there is some degree, I'm not sure how much of a degree, I don't even know how to put brackets around this, but there is some degree where if we will go to the Lord in faith and we will receive that which we ask for. In fact, Jesus even says, if you ask anything in my name, you will receive it. And I don't think it's because everything you ask has been predetermined. I think it's because if you find that place where you are aligned with the will of God and you ask according to the will of God, you will actually find that place of what I'm calling breakthrough. Now, the, what I've just articulated is somewhat different from the classical sovereignty position, and it's closer to what is called open theism. I'm not really an open theist, just for the record. But open theism teaches that there are some things God himself doesn't foreknow, or there are some things that God himself can't ordain, or there are some things that God himself is taken by surprise, and with all of this, God is himself discovering things about himself as the story unfolds between him and his people. If you take that even further, you end up in something called process theology, I don't believe in process theology either. But um, I do see this, I don't know what to call it, a degree of openness or flexibility where those who are come to the Lord in faith, who, who um, understand the principles of the Word of God, and I do have a teaching on this on my website uh, that deals with this matter of prevailing prayer and finding that place of breakthrough, it seems that God is delighted when people approach him with that confidence in prayer, and they they come to him, as it were, you know, saying, Father, wouldn't you? And there's something of that that moves the heart of God such that, such that he hears us. It's kind of a long answer, but I felt like well, I needed to point out that, that this is a huge theological iceberg, and you're only looking at the tip. Well, that's that's right, and and someday I would love to uh, do do a an episode or probably fifty episodes where we talk about um, your thoughts on just specifically the Book of Romans because we've talked about that, and I just think I've heard a lot of people talk about the Book of Romans, and I I really love what you have to say about it, and so I didn't want to I knew I was going to open Pandora's box a little bit on this, but I I think it's important that as we approach the throne and as we 
contend for breakthrough, it, it helps us to have a framework of saying, this is okay, and, and there's scripture behind this, and, and we can kind of continue to press in and contend uh, with the Lord on things. Um, it just it just helps us to have a, a good starting point for that. So I appreciate um, you taking some time to, to unpack that as, as we move forward. And so uh, with that in mind, Talk to us a little bit about how, how do we do that? How do we position ourselves uh, to begin to pray that the Lord breaks in uh, into our circumstances? Yeah, so, you know, it, it says many places in the Old Testament um, that when things were, when the chips were down, doesn't use that phrasing, but that's the condition. When the chips were down, David would inquire of the Lord. And I think for some people, they they take that to mean, you know, David walked into the temple, maybe he got on his knees, or maybe he even fell down prostrate. And, you know, he asked God, okay, what do we do here? And I'm sure there was some of that going on. I wouldn't, I wouldn't deny that. But that way of thinking about it almost, it almost supposes that, you know, David was in and out of the temple in 10 minutes. He, you know, he went to the slot machine and he, he happened to hit the slots right. And so he got his answer. And so bada boom, bada bing. And, and maybe that's not quite the right way to think about it. David inquired of the Lord, you know, in, in legal proceedings, especially like criminal proceedings, we hear of inquiry, right? And, and when we talk about an inquiry, an inquiry could be a multi-day, multi-week, maybe multi-month sometimes even multi-year process, where there's an inquiry open. And there's all kinds of data that's being examined, and there's all kinds of case history, and a lot of people are contacted. And, you know, it's, it's a huge effort. And sometimes, you know, big crimes that have gone unsolved, many years later even, they get solved. Why? Because the inquiry was never closed. And so I think there's a kind of longer range vision that we want to have in our mind when we're talking about inquiring of the Lord, that it may not just simply be that I went to church or temple or wherever, and I, you know, prayed for 10 minutes and I got the answer. You know, I'm thinking of a friend of mine and his wife, and this is a, I don't know, not that many years ago, but, but sometime in the last decade, and she came down with a, with a tumor on the in the low part of her the base of her skull kind of below the cerebellum where the spinal cords come into the brain and this tumor would have been approximately the size of your thumbnail and they could see it clearly on an mri and they said look there's nothing we can do and it was giving her these raging headaches they knew they were pretty sure it wasn't cancer but they said we can't remove this tumor because of where it is if we go in and try to cut it out, we may as likely kill you or paralyze you as heal you. So we'll give you all the morphine you want, but we, we can't actually help you with this. And so my friend called me and he said, Ken, we've got to go to the Lord. And we didn't live in the same city, so we weren't always together as we went to the Lord. But he was inquiring of the Lord and I was inquiring of the Lord and you know, we were we were doing a number of things to do that, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but let's just leave it at that for now, lest it become too cumbersome. 
and so we were we were inquiring of the Lord, and after nine months of doing this, now I'm not saying we prayed every minute of nine of nine months, but every day of nine months, somewhere in that day, we were before the Lord asking about this. Sometimes together, sometimes separately, um, but you know, so let's just say that's like 18 man months of of inquiring of the Lord concerning this condition. The Lord revealed what it was and we took that piece of information and prayed for her and she was completely set free and the tumor vanished she's had no more problems from that day to this and when i say it vanished i mean it went like right now it was an overnight kind of thing not even overnight in that moment and you know they have the before and after mris to see it was there it's not there but it took 18 months of that. Now, wow. you know, in another podcast that we've done, we talked about me praying for a woman with a particular condition of, of pus oozing from her body, and it took five years to get the breakthrough for her. Well, maybe if my friend and I had teamed up, we would have gotten it faster, but he wasn't on that case. It was just me. But in this case, we were working together, and his wife was healed. So that's a kind of inquiry that's, a, in this case, multi-month and going into the you know better part of the second year type of uh in terms of time expended but we found an answer yeah and, and you is, see so it, so often people wanted to stop they just want to say well sucks to be you or i guess god's not going to heal this one or you know whatever but but we we actually need to have a little more fortitude in our souls as it were to lay hold of the horns of the altar and not let go no, I, I think, and I've, I've heard you speak uh, a couple times, I, I use this vernacular as well, like, keys to the kingdom. I mean, I think God honors persistent prayer. You know, I think we've lost yep. maybe the value. I, I grew up in a, in a denomination that may be a little more Pentecostal, but we used to talk about tarrying before the Lord. And yeah, I, I think we I think we may have throwing the baby out with the bathwater on a lot of that. And I just, I think the Lord honors just that persistency and that continuing to press in. And I, I think there's something there that God really loves. It makes him happy, you know, to see his people continue yep. to contend for that. So, yep. I think, I think that's exactly right. I think it pleases the heart of God when his people come to him expectantly. That's a really important word not just doing a pro forma prayer, but it's like, hey, I'm coming here and I, I actually expect that I'm going to get what I'm praying for. Again, because I pray according to his will, not because it's just my best idea. And, and note that these are things that are, they are material that pertain to the kingdom. That You know, there was a lot of mockery that went on in years gone by about the so-called name it and claim it crowd and how we're, you know, claiming a Cadillac. Well, you know, God might want to bless you, and if you want to buy a Cadillac with that prosperity, that's between you and him. But that's not really the point. The point is this is about kingdom. This is about God's work advancing. This is about the sick being healed, the dead being raised, demons being cast out, that righteousness would be released in a city, that, that you know, just rulers would be raised up, that trafficked children would be set free. I mean, these are the things that really are in front of the Lord's mind. And if we go to him and ask according to his will on matters like this, the well, if two or more of you agree touching anything, it will be done concerning that by my Father in heaven. This is the assured promise of Jesus. 
That's so good. That's so good. I even remember hearing, uh, you know, Pappy Hagen, Kenneth Hagen, talking about that. He's probably called the father of that name and claimant movement, where he was basically yep. saying, "Look, you you can't claim anything that it, that's not in the scriptures." You know what I mean? Like, you're you're a surety comes right. from, and that's that position of saying, "Okay, what is the Lord for, and what can we really contend for?" I think that's so crucial in, in our persistence. To, to make sure our that's right. our our will aligns with his, you know, it's just so important. So how, how how do we do that? What practically, functionally, can you can you give us a picture of what what does it look like to contend? What does it look like to contend for breakthrough um, in, in a prayer situation? And, and how, how should we be thinking about this and going through that that process? Yep. Okay. So the things I'm going to share here are not. They're not in a neatly defined order. Again, I'm driving. We're doing a podcast. If I were preparing a teaching, I might put them in that order. But um, So this is more of a grab bag of thoughts as opposed to a linear first A, then B, then C, then D. Um, but I'll just say this. On my website, orbisministries.org, O-R-B-I-S, orbisministries.org, um, I have a teaching called Confidence Before God. And I think that that's a worthy uh, teaching for anybody who's listening to this to consider getting, because I, I go into this in some detail from the scriptures. But you know, confidence is rooted in knowing that we are that we are in alignment with God, that we are praying according to His will. And I think one of the biggest things that that stops us from finding breakthrough is many times we don't really know the mind of the Lord. And so you'll, one of the common ways you'll, you'll hear this expressed is people are praying for their sick friend or family member or whoever, and they'll say, oh, Lord, if it be thy will. Well, they don't actually know. They don't have confidence that it's God's will to heal. They're hoping it might be. And maybe by praying, they could perhaps persuade God to do this thing. But, but there's not that sort of, no, I, I understand the will of God because it's already revealed to me in Scripture. And so this goes back to something we've discussed elsewhere about, you know, when is it the will of God to heal? And I said, well, pretty much every time that it isn't a sickness unto death. And here's how you think about sickness unto death. So that's a different podcast. But um, that confidence that you that, that comes rooted in the teaching of Scripture, I think that's one of the most important things that we can secure. Um, so let's let's move beyond the confidence to the to the underlying scripture itself. I think another way that we get to breakthrough is we search the scripture and we learn the ways of God. I might say the mind of God, such that we think His thoughts after Him. Now He thinks them first, but we train, we discipline our minds and our hearts to be oriented towards those things which are closest to his heart and always on his mind. Now, I can't remember if it's Exodus 33 or 34. It's one or the other. Um, but Moses is on the mountain, and he's gone up there to receive, what is it? The Ten Commandments, which is the core of the Torah. And what does Moses pray while he's up on the mountain? He says, well, Lord, teach me your ways. And, and God, he says, Lord, you have said to me that I have found favor in your sight. If I have found favor in your sight, 
then teach me your ways so that I might find favor in your sight. So he's creating what I call the divine corkscrew. When I, when I know, uh, when I find favor in your sight, you will reveal your ways to me. And when you reveal your ways to me, the, the clear assumption is I will walk in those ways. And when I walk in those ways, I will please you, and therefore you will teach me yet another level of depth of your ways. And as I learn another level of depth of your ways, you will teach me more of your ways so that I can please you more, so that you will teach me yet more of your ways. We might call these the deeper things of God. But this is the divine corkscrew that Moses is speaking into and praying and petitioning God to reveal to him. And do you know what he gets out of that? He gets two tablets of stone that are graven by the very finger of God. God shows him his ways, and he says, my ways are known in my written word. Mm -hmm. The way of the God can also be known in the spoken word. Some people call that the rhema. It's actually not real good Greek. Um, Moses is saying, teach me your ways, and God directs him into his word. Now, at that time, the word was pretty limited. It was just the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone. But not long after that, what does God start to do? He unveils his statutes and ordinances, which become the whole of the Torah. And this is the foundation of Judaism, and it also is the foundation of Christianity. You know, a lot of times when we are when when I'm inquiring of the Lord, the Lord will take me to very interesting places in his word and I I see things in the word which maybe aren't being widely taught or aren't being considered. In fact, I would say in our time going specifically to the Old Testament and even more particularly to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that are called the books of Moses, you know, if you had a revelation, let's say about um, a particular healing in Leviticus, and I have had those revelations, um, you know, people would say, Leviticus, who reads Leviticus? That's all about, you know, that, that doesn't even matter anymore. That's the Old Testament. And you will hear people say that. They cast it aside as though it is of no significance. But Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away before one jot or tittle meaning the, in our parlance, the crossing of a T or the dotting of an I or a J, before one little piece of a letter goes away, heaven and earth will pass away. The word of God is, is durable, and it is utterly trustworthy. And in our time, people are mostly ignorant of the word of God. They don't read it. It's not being preached in any depth in many of our churches. And in many cases, we have pastors who have a prevailing preconception. They don't like what it says, and so they preach contrary to the Word of God. How is anybody going to align themselves with the ways of the Lord if they aren't being exposed to those truths? So as an example of that, I remember, I don't know, maybe it was two or three years ago. This is a relatively recent breakthrough revelation, but I was having a lot of parents bringing their kids to my meetings, and they, their kids were teenagers, and they were all filled with acne. And, you know, nobody likes acne. It's kind of homely, and, you know, the, the person with the acne feels very embarrassed by it. 
And you know, a funny thing about um, acne is if you read the description of leprosy in the Bible, today we have a very specific disease called Hansen's disease that qualifies, and that's the only thing modern times that qualifies as leprosy. But if you look at the biblical description, leprosy is not called Hansen's disease. It is it is a series of skin conditions and rashes and whatnot that arise that that look like redness of skin and white pustules and you know all the things that we think of as acne. So one could argue that phenomenologically, um, acne and leprosy are the same thing. And if you think about the way kids in school might treat another kid in school with a particularly bad case of acne, well, we could say they are treated as though they are a leper. Now, I want to say it again. I am 100% clear that scientifically today, we classify only Hansen's disease as leprosy. But I'm suggesting to you that in the biblical times, according to the way they thought about it, they probably weren't being so narrow as to say only Hansen's disease is leprosy. So I started looking at the I started looking at the conditions of what is leprosy and how it's described and what they're supposed to do about it and all this. And I'm thinking about these these young adults that are being brought to me, these adolescents, and they they have a, a apparently leprous condition. And I use the word apparently on purpose because I don't want us to get 20,000 letters or emails from people saying, Ken Fish said this, and and it's not what I'm saying. I'm I'm trying to get people to think analogically. I'm trying to get them to understand what's the thrust of the scripture rather than being legalistic and tied down to the letter at this point. But, you know, also found in in the Pentateuch, in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, One of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So when we honor mom and dad, even though it may be hard, sometimes parents are real schmucks. I mean, depending on your parent, it may not just be that they're hard to get along with or they think their way is the only way. I mean, sometimes they're abusive. Sometimes they're rapists. Sometimes they, they torture their own kids. I mean, some parents aren't worthy of the name, and they need to have their children taken out of the home. I mean, I recognize how bad it can get, and yet the Scripture says we're to honor our father and mother that it may go well with us in the land the Lord our God is giving us. And so, you know, as I was looking at these many cases, it was kind of a season in God where this was happening to me more and more, and parents were bringing their kids with these, you know, terrible acne conditions that weren't responding to the, the usual kinds of medications and other things, you know, ultraviolet treatment, whatever. Um, and And so... I would, as I as I pondered these things from the scripture, what is leprosy, and and what what are the commands of the Lord that are found here in the Pentateuch? Now remember, I'm only war operating off the Pentateuch, not even the whole Council of Scripture on this one. So this is a, a, a much narrower, uh, what do you want to say, data set of revelation. I, I I remember the first time I looked at this young woman, and she was she was a pretty young woman, but her, she her face was really broken out, and, and so in that sense, she wasn't so pretty. And, you know, she was really distraught over it, and I just looked at her and I said, can I ask you a question? 
and I pulled her away from her parents. I wanted to have a private conversation with her. So we're still in front of the church. Everyone can see everything's on the up and up. I'm not doing anything weird. Um, but, but I could have a private conversation with her because there was no one overhearing what we were saying. I said, can you tell me, how's your relationship with your parents? She kind of, you know, looked down at the ground. She goes, well, not so good. I said, tell me about what's been going on. Well, you know, my mom this and my dad that. And I said, and, and how are you handling that? Well, you know, I tell them what I think. And I, you know, I get up their nose and shake my fist at them and go in my room, slam the door. And I said, and do you feel, do you feel good about that? Well, no, not really. I said, you know, have you ever thought about the fact that you're violating the Lord's commandment? That you're supposed to honor your father and mother? And you're not doing that? She goes, I've never thought about that. I said, yeah, I kind of thought that might be right. And I'm kind of being led of the Spirit at this point, because this was the first time I saw this breakthrough. And, um, and I said, you know, why don't you and I pray right now and just ask for forgiveness for breaking that commandment? and dishonoring your father and mother. So we did, and I said, why don't you go over and give your mom and dad a hug and just apologize to them for how surly you've been. And, and by the way, I'll just add right here, when is acne most at its height? Answer, the teenage years. And when are uh, young people who are children transitioning into adulthood, when are they differentiating from their parents? And maybe because their social skills aren't that well developed, <clears throat> when are they most likely to act in a surly and disrespectful manner towards their father and mother? Answer, same time in life. So she went over and she you know, had a good cry with her parents and they were you know, grateful to hear her repenting to them of what she had done and they in turn repented of maybe some of their own intransigence and laying down the law and you know, you're going to do it this way because you're living under my roof. And so there's kind of a softening all around. The next morning when we came back to church for the service, all of her acne was gone. Gone. Her leprosy had cleared because we were now honoring what was in the Word of God. And I wouldn't say it's a 100% heal rate, but I would say it's, it's well above 75% of the time. When I see a young person who's coming with acne, um, I will ask them first off, right off the line. I don't even have to wait now. How's, how are things with mom and dad? And I'll lead them in that prayer, and I'd say about three-quarters of the time they get healed. And it may not be as fast as overnight, but generally within a week. They're all of that acne, all of those blackheads, all of that angry pus, all, all everything, it's just gone. And so, you know, we, we, have, we have emptied the Word of God and, and that's an example of how we press into breakthrough. We go back to the scriptures and we find out where did something like this happen, something that looks like this, and what are the parameters around that? And gee golly, have we somehow not, not honored the perimeter that the Lord himself has set up around that issue? Does that make sense? No, that's, that's so good. I mean, I think, you know, it is it is interesting to think through, okay, I think on a macro level, we all think that the Bible has the answers, but, you know, on a micro level, something that seems so insignificant of acne, I mean, that's just a perfect example of God's so kind, and he just, he, he created the system, he knows how it works, and, and he's provided a way, 
uh, for all of it. That's that's a, that's awesome. Don't yeah. don't let don't let Clearcell hear about uh, what what you're teaching. <laughs> we'll call it Bibasil, right? right? We got Clearcell right. and Bibasil. Take your pick. But you know that's an example, and then and then there's a whole other uh, you know set of things that. This is one that's really going to stretch some people, but I, I remember one time I was praying for this kid that was, um, he was crippled with uh, muscular dystrophy. And, you know, he had to wear braces and mostly he was in a wheelchair, but, and, and his, his ability to walk was declining. But if he had his braces on, he could still walk a bit, not real far. He wasn't any athlete, but he was debilitated. And so, you know, his mom had asked me if I would pray with him. And I think we spent maybe it was three hours praying for him in that session, which is a long time to pray. And it's tiring for everybody, me, him, the mom. Uh, but, but you know, well, we had the I time think, and we were. I mean, stopping right there. I mean, that goes back to the very first thing we talked about, persistence. I mean, yeah. how many times, I mean, we probably can't count on one hand how many times we've taken three hours and prayed for for one individual, for one little thing and, and at one point in time. So, I mean, I think that's, that's the first step, right? Persistence, just keep keeping at it. That's right. It's exactly right. And, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people like to talk about John G. Lake, the great healer from the early 20th century. He had an astounding healing ministry. There were more than 100,000 documented miracles of healing under his ministry in five years. Do the math. That's 20,000 a year, 52 weeks. That works out to like 400 healings a week. If you were, you know, if you're, if you said that he was only praying five days a week, 400 divided by five, that's like 80 healings a day. Now he did have people helping him. He had his healing rooms and whatnot. But the point is, you know, people look at John Lake and they're like, wow, that's amazing. But, you know, I've read everything that's available on John Lake more than once. And when I was working for John Wimber, um, John liked him. I, I loved him. He just he ignited something in my heart. And so, I, you know, John Lake, as it were, to read his journals, to read his sermons, it's almost like being able to sit down with somebody who's more experienced than I am and pick their brain. This is what I remember I said earlier in this broadcast that uh, or this podcast, I said that, um, you know, you might want to you might want to go to people who have some experience in this area. Well, being able to read some of those writings is a bit like doing that. But one of the things that I've noticed of all the people that have ever talked to me about how awesome John Lake was, I remember one particular story in Lake's journals where he says, you know, they went to pray for this person. And as I remember the story, I think it was a brother of his, not not literally a blood brother, but a brother in the Lord. And this guy was in bed. And Lake said he went there and he sat down in the room and he'd gone with two other men to pray for this guy. And... uh <clears throat> And, you know, they knelt down and started to pray. And Lake said, presently, I settled down into a, a chair that was there in the room. And I, I, I put my fingers together like a steeple. And I rested my head against my fingers. And he said, and we prayed for, for several hours. And he says, along about the sixth hour, the lightnings of God hit me. And I rose from the chair and I went to him. And I laid my hands on him, and I rebuked the sickness and the paralysis, and I commanded him to rise in the name of the Lord, and he did. Well, it's, a, it's an astounding story, and it's a faith builder, 
But did you catch that they prayed for six man hours each, and there's three of them praying? That's 18 collective hours of praying in one location, and then the lightnings of God came. Right. Well, and it's probably like and just knowing, knowing how John G. Lake prayed, it's probably not the first time he did that, rebuked it and all That's that. right. <laughs> yeah. So you see that, that kind of long, you know, persistence in praying, and this thing that he calls the lightnings of God, I think today we call it the power of God. I mean, I'd love to ask him, when you say that, do you mean what I mean by the power of God? Because this is what I mean by the power of God. But I'm, I'm reasonably certain that these are the same thing, just two different sets of language because of two different eras and ways of speaking. Um, but something was released. And, you know, I, I have known this one that I really believe that most of the healing that occurs, that's really substantive healing, it is not so much because we're claiming anything or decreeing anything. Decreeing has become the modern equivalent of claiming something. In the 70s, we claimed it. In the, in the 21st century, we decree it. But I think most of this really happens because the lightnings of God or the power of God is released. Paul even says, you know, my message and my preaching were not with wise words of human wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Note that it's demonstration. It's not claiming. It's not decreeing. It's demonstration. And Lake, Lake was, if you will, inquiring of the Lord until he found that place in God where he touched the live wire of heaven and the lightning of God hit him. And now he became a channel of the lightning of God that then hit that individual and they were healed. I, I think we need to do a lot more talking about the power of God as opposed to claiming and decreeing. I, I do recognize there is a thing called the gift of faith. It's listed by Paul as one of the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. And I do recognize that when that gift is in operation, pretty much anything you say will happen. And in that moment, you can make a decree or you can claim something and you will get what you've asked for. But many times that isn't happening yet. And we have, we've turned it into a formula, a recitation. And what we really need is that dynamic, active power of God. And we've got to find our way to where, what is that thing that is blocking that power? That, too, is another key of breakthrough. Right. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I actually was talking to a friend. Uh, we've been praying for someone uh, who has a, a degenerative disease. And uh, we've, we've been praying for them often. And we were both talking about the story of John G. Lake. He was praying for someone, same person. They came, I think it was 49 days in a row, to one of his healing rooms that he was at, and they couldn't talk. And so there was no way to say, well, I feel like there was a little bit of improvement, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So there was nothing for an hour a day for 49 days. And then on the on the 50th day, something happened, breakthrough happened, and all of a sudden they were able to talk. And it's just, it's convicting for us that, I mean, we want to pray once or maybe twice. And, and then when it doesn't happen, we're, we're, we're thinking, okay, well, we usually default to maybe it's God's will that this happens later or whatever. But I think it's that same issue of pressing in, finding the power, that dunamis power of, of, of God acting. Hey, that was part one of a two-part series of conversations between Ken and I about Breakthrough. We want you to listen to the next episode for part two.
God is Not a Theory is a podcast of Orbis Ministries. For more information about Orbis Ministries, go to orbisministries.org. If you have questions you'd like to have Ken answer on the podcast, please send us an email to podcast at orbisministries.org. Thanks for listening.